You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today, Skanda Amarnath, is the research director at Employ America. Employ America is a great organization. We've had uh, previous Employ America guests on here, but but Skanda is uh, really like the guy on the Fed, monetary issues, and wanted to talk to you about inflation and overheating which uh people are people are talking about lately the possibility that we're going to see an inflationary economy coming later this year and so i mean i don't know will we so first thanks for having me on um <laughs> i i think that the question about inflation really needs a little bit of additional precision about exactly what kind of inflation are we talking about here are we talking about the sort of one one off price adjustments in particularly affected sectors like airfares and lodging due to the reopening from the economy uh, maybe some additional ability to spend because of the American rescue plan sure I think that like there are certainly sectors that are more where you could see some price adjustments on the upside and then you do see something that looks like a little bit of inflation technically but if we're talking about stuff that's more persistent and the kinds of things that really warrant aggressive policy responses, it seems far less obvious that that's the case. The notion that a one-off spending plan and one-off set of transfers through fiscal policy is going to have persistent effects on inflation is really hard to believe unless you actually think that the economy is going to come out of this in such a strong state that not only are we going to sort of get back to a sort of pre-pandemic labor market, but something even stronger than that. It's worth remembering that before the pandemic, we had historically low unemployment, but we didn't really see historically strong wage growth. And even inflation readings were pretty soft by the time you got to the end of 2019 and early 2020. So we're dealing with an economy that had pretty, I guess, decent wage growth relative to low inflation, but historically low wage growth and historically low inflation together. And so as we kind of come out of this, it's true that we are adding more support and as more support that actually can tighten the labor market through higher rates of labor utilization, so a lower unemployment rate. And at the same time, that might actually create the conditions in which you do see the kind of persistent gains in wages that we were sort of lacking for more than a decade in the 2010s, especially. That that it's still left to be decided. It's going to be determined by the extent to which the fiscal package is effective. And it's going to be determined by the extent to which we're right now in the midst of vaccinating 
much of the population. And so if that goes well, it's, I, I don't want to dismiss any possibility as completely outlandish, but there's a lot of things that have to go right. And even then, it's not clear that like just doing this on a one-off basis is going to lead to the kind of persistent inflation that people fear in the 70s, where it's the, this sort of ongoing wages are increasing, prices are increasing, and it's hard to control. Yeah, so let's let's talk about why this matters, right? Um, there's this sort of basic thing, you know, I... Um, I have a Prius, so I don't I don't get gas all that often. But I needed to get gas yesterday, and it's noticeably more expensive than it was, you know, a couple months ago. And like any normal person, I I like to have money, so I'm like, oh man, this sucks. At the same time, if you think about it, it's like gas prices have gone up because the economic situation has improved, and you know that's life. But you don't want to have a situation where prices are spiraling out of control somehow throughout the economy. That's, I guess, what happened in the 70s. The old timers tell us these these tales about it. And that the concern is supposed to be that if we do too much in terms of fiscal stimulus, or if the Fed doesn't raise interest rates fast enough, then we get this, we get this bad inflation. Right. Why? Why is that? Like what? What? Where does the where does the fear come from? So there are a few different stories that tend to overlap about why you get one bit of inflation and then it's supposed to spiral out of control. Right. Mm -hmm. That is kind of the this something that Larry Summers has brought up more recently that once inflation goes up and once it gets above it's sort of the Fed's target, then it's hard to control. And so the, the few things that kind of people point out for these spiraling effects. One is the notion of inflation expectations, that people, once they start to see the inflation, they're going to expect more inflation. And it's really hard to like short-circuit that process. Mm -hmm. Now, inflation expectations are definitely part of how people make sense of the 70s, but it's actually not something that is directly identifiable in the 70s. We don't have surveys that are very um, extensive in the 70s of what people thought about inflation. And if you actually look at what the surveys and what, let's say, the bond market shows through inflation-indexed fixed income products, their ability to predict inflation is pretty muted. This is the point that the Fed has made itself, that actually if you look at estimates of inflation expectations directly, whether we're talking about market participants or, or we're talking about sort of people who are surveyed, businesses who are surveyed, households who are surveyed, they're not particularly informative, but they are very important to the narrative around how inflation got out of control from the late 60s through to the early 80s, and it took sort of Paul Volcker taking a huge act to the economy through rapid rate hikes to be able to anchor inflation expectations. Mm -hmm. This is a story. It doesn't exactly, it's not something we can directly observe. Some people think you can proxy it through different sort of variables, but it's not actually something that's directly observed in terms of inflation expectations. We don't have a way of saying people expected this and then that itself led to higher prices. But so the the upshot of that story, right, is that we need a kind of a, a precautionary principle yeah. for inflation, right? So, I mean, I remember 2015, um, there was no inflation problem. But interest rates had been low for a long time. And the unemployment rate was lower than it had been before. And it was maybe it was pretty low, you know, so people were looking around, they were saying, Oh, that's good, right? Like we used to have really high unemployment. Now it's much lower. And there was this pressure you could feel from from Wall Street, from people in the media, and from, I think, inside the Fed staff to say, well, we should raise interest rates now, not because they're 
is inflation, but because there might be inflation. And if you let inflation happen, then, you know, who knows, right? Like there might be coyotes devouring our children the next day. I, I mean, it was a very powerful force in policymaking, right? Not that there there was an actual inflation that the Fed needed to raise rates to combat, but that the mere possibility sort of had to be clamped down on. Yes. So this is about the notion of preemptive strike against inflation, you could say, right? That this is the notion that you have to raise rates because the unemployment rate is low. Because if you don't raise rates because the unemployment rate is low, then you are risking inflation and then you are sort of lacking some level of credibility because you are not willing to curb inflation risk ahead of time, right? So these are these are the parts where, especially rule-based models of uh monetary policy were saying, well, part of your rule was supposed to be the unemployment rate. And once the unemployment rate went down, the credible thing is to sort of actually pull back some of your accommodation. This was something that John Taylor, who sort of um, is a Stanford economist, kind of a big wig in academia in terms of macroeconomic policy and policy rules. And so he, as one of the people who were the strongest voices, maybe closer to the, on the right, but even among the Fed staff itself, you see that there was a certain, we don't know what's going to happen if we kind of let rates stay low while the unemployment rate's already at 5%. And so there's a notion that 5% we're kind of getting into a zone. And this gets to the probably second narrative that probably is important for spiraling um, when you think about it, is the late 60s. Right In the late 60s, we had low unemployment, but inflation was rising for a set of reasons that um, we can get into. But there's, then there's a notion that we let the unemployment rate get so low. The 60s is sort of this period of like hedonistic living. And there's also this notion that it's uh, spilled over into macroeconomics, that people tried to get the unemployment rate so low. And that's what led to sort of this decade of inflation getting out of control. Eric Rosengren might be the best person to actually sort of typify some of this view, which was, I'm really worried about a labor market getting so tight that actually people get these sort of glossy expectations about wages and prices as a result of it. And I think there's a little bit of, I won't say that, I don't, I don't buy into this narrative either, as you can probably tell, but there is a part of the 70s that should be differentiated from other periods. We did see higher wage growth. We did see wage growth that actually largely matched price inflation. And I think part of this is that union density was really high. And in a way that the contracts a lot of um, sort of organized labor bargained for were to make sure that their real standards of living did not go down. So they made sure that there were COLA terms within their cost of living adjustments terms. Now, there are other countries that managed with high union density to not have these exact same problems or at least have them to a lesser degree. Um, and that kind of required certain like mutual levels of sacrifice. But in the U.S., over the course of the 70s, you did see very high rates of wage, nominal wage growth and very high rates of price inflation. That's not been true since the 70s, really. Mm -hmm. At the 70s, we've seen lower and lower rates of nominal wage growth. And I think this is sort of the notorious fact that real wage growth has been roughly flat for long periods of time and has not been the kind of thing where we've seen that nominal income growth has been out of control. We also saw in the 70s breakneck levels of nominal spending in fixed investment. So we had these huge capital spending booms in things like oil and gas, uh, housing. So we had a set of things that were very capital intensive that led to a lot of spending. And that lot of spending also meant there's going to be a higher <laughs> sort of bidding war for more sets of uh, goods and services. And so it does kind of check out that sort of higher rates of nominal spending and income growth and higher inflation kind of, they don't move one for one every month or every quarter. But 
over the course of the decade, like those things should roughly match up um, to some degree. But you don't think that this kind of preemptive strike view is is correct, right? I mean, this is a a sort of costly approach to dealing with a, a hypothetical issue. Yeah, it's it's a very dangerous approach if you actually see the benefits of tight labor markets. So there's one problem is the unemployment rate itself is not very representative for a few different reasons. One is that unemployed people are actually are a subset of the set of non-employed people who could otherwise enter the labor market. And we actually see that the survey for estimating unemployed is pretty faulty and getting more faulty over time in terms of how they make that distinction. So actually something like the employment to population ratio or a prime age version of that is going to be more reliable for that purpose. Then there's a second problem of just that you don't actually see how the preemptive strike on inflation necessarily works except through recessions. Mm-hmm. Like how monetary policy ends up having an impact on inflation. There are a few different channels and they're not necessarily that you have to have a recession, but if you take a really aggressive approach to this, we were at risk of I'd say closer to the risk of recession that I think people recognize in 2015 and 16. And it was the kind of thing that what was the real impetus to actually raise interest rates when inflation's low, nominal GDP growth is low, nominal wage growth is low. And that was all due to this sort of parsimonious view that you can't get below a certain level of the unemployment rate without bad things happening elsewhere. So I, this this is this is technical shit, but I don't know. It's the weeds. Um, so, you know, so the unemployment rate, right, that is they they kind of ask people, do you have a job and are you looking for a job? Right. So the unemployed are the looking for a job people. And then there's this larger universe of people who are non-employed, but not unemployed. And I guess, obviously, like we all hear about the unemployment rate all the time, because at some point in history, this must have been a good indicator of something. And, and I guess I, I guess like maybe the model is you think of a, a post-war economy and people are working in factories and then during a recession, they lay off a lot of the workers and then they recall them back when when times are good again. But in the contemporary economy, right, we we don't see a lot of super reliable information in the unemployment rate. Like, it's actually very common for people who did not qualify as unemployed to then go get a job. Absolutely. Um, And, you know, and I just think that's, like, important to know. Like, it's a media thing. Like, when the new unemployment rate comes out, people put that in the headline, and they don't put the employment to population ratio in the headline, even though it's in the same report. And the journalists who do those write-ups are like familiar with both of these variables and what they mean. And I don't know, it's like, I, I think we should just report on the other one. Yeah, I mean, I guess part of it might be that the employment to population ratio is itself quite wordy. And then there's a <laughs> sort of additional point that you have... Um, there is a demographic structure thing that is important to acknowledge with the employment to population ratio, which is that look, as the population ages, like what that employment to population ratio is going to be, we don't want retirees and kids working, right? Like this is so depending on the age structure, like what's the right level is kind of hard to anchor. Whereas people kind of know three percent unemployment that seems really good, and ten percent unemployment that seems really bad. Everyone has like this sort of vague ballpark. But what does five percent unemployment mean? Is actually like. A little bit unclear, right? The five percent unemployment could mean you're like in the process of a recession, like in two thousand one. Five percent unemployment could mean, in case of uh, twenty fifteen, people think, "Oh, we've made so much progress from the global financial crisis," right? And I think to your point about 
as the expansion continued in the late latter half of the 2010s, labor force participation increased. And that itself kind of just tells you there were people who were being classified as not employed and not unemployed. So these are people who are not in the labor force altogether, and they're apparently not looking for work, are the exact same set of people who are entering the job market and actually are, they're not just going from out of the labor force to unemployed, they're going from out of the labor force to employed altogether. So you are seeing, this. there's something that's being missing in terms of how we classify these people in the survey. And there, this has actually been documented in a few different papers about how what people report in the survey about whether they are looking for a job or not looking for a job don't really follow like consistent patterns. So they say, oh, I was unemployed this month, I was out of the labor force the next month, I was unemployed in the third month. And then when they ask them, well, how many weeks have you been unemployed? They say three, three months. And so they kind of count pe- people's perceptions of whether they were unemployed or not don't necessarily line up with the survey. So there's some inconsistencies there. I know this is, again, in the weeds, but it does kind of show you like there's something fallible about looking at just the unemployed and not looking at the total sort of working age population called adjusted for demographics. Right. And yeah, I mean, you're right, right? To say uh, the prime age employment to population ratio, that's like a lot of words compared to the unemployment rate, which I guess could deter you from putting it in there. Prime age means like you you ignore old people, basically, uh, because, you know, employment dynamics among the elderly are sort of its own kind of subject matter. Uh, but like what we what we saw, I, I mean, I remember there being all these papers that were like, oh, why has the labor force participation rate gotten so low? And there was this dialogue about like, did video games get better or were like people watching too much internet porn? And so they didn't need girlfriends, so they didn't need to get a job. And I think as we went into 2017, 2018, 2019, it was just like, I don't know, the labor market was weak, and then it got better, and more people got jobs. Yeah, I think there is a strong aversion among a certain crowd of economists and call it people who follow this stuff in sort of a more wonky level of just saying that actually more macroeconomic policy support, the things that are more traditionally Keynesian, people could say, in terms of fiscal and monetary policy working, allowing the business cycle to expand, Instead, is always like a tendency to say, "Oh, this must be because of opioids." And I, it's, I'm not trying to sort of diminish the sort of importance of like particular supply side issues or things that are about, "Oh, maybe people's preference for work has changed because they had this sort of new disincentive." There's all sorts of discussion of that. Some stuff is I'm, I'm more morally sympathetic to, but it, I think so, so we should like not deny like that there a lot of this stuff is in the hands of policymakers who do have the policy tools to do something about it. There's a tendency to turn everything into an engineering problem in which it's a, uh, oh, clearly people did not have the same inclination to go to work. Clearly there must be some technological change that's happened in the economy in the last five years and that's why people can't participate the way they used to. And it's like, no, look, we had a really rough recovery for a few very obvious reasons. One, global financial crisis, there was a huge amount of household deleveraging. We didn't really do a lot of stimulus. And then we did a lot of austerity for from the 20, 2011 onwards. Um, I mean, state and local governments actually started austerity before the federal government really went into full austerity mode. And so we saw a historic amount of cuts to federal government spending, um, defense and non-defense. Um, and that itself was going to slow down the economy if you just think about the raw demand subtraction taking place. Like, in some ways, it was we kind of were very lucky to sort of have um, an expansion that continued for so long in spite of a federal government that was largely working in the opposite direction. And so as we kind of came out of some of those headwinds, I think we actually kind of ended up seeing that, look, 
if you can actually run an economy through, and if we did not have such a sluggish recovery to begin with, a lot of these people would have come back and found jobs. And again, it's kind of a function of labor demand, not that there was some sort of problematic issue on the labor supply side. Okay, let's take a break, and I think that's a great place to drive into the future. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. So people are hopefully getting vaccinated uh, over the next couple of months. There's going to be less legal restrictions on what you can do, less just sort of prudence, right? More people traveling, more people dining out. Uh, We're also doing quite a lot of, of fiscal stimulus, right? at the moment. And, you know, to me, like the big thing that I worry about is that we're going to see, you know, gas prices are already going up. Probably airlines will try to raise prices, maybe hotels. I mean, who knows, right? There's going to be a recovery. And and some people are going to try to take take advantage of that. And I really worry, right, that policymakers will start pumping the brakes too quickly. That they'll say, okay, the emergency is over. People are getting jobs. And now we need to kind of, we need to reel it in. Because that's what seems to me was sort of that story in Obama's second term. Am I crazy or, or, you know, do do you also worry about this? I mean, I, I think that's the biggest risk in terms of having a sustained recovery out of this is that we see some bout of overheating, that the sort of set of political priorities or policy priorities shift. And they can shift a lot quicker than people realized. If you think about at the very same time that President Obama was signing ARRA, the 2009 stimulus, he was also in discussions about how to find ways to cut the deficit uh, with some of his uh, Democratic colleagues in the con- in Congress. Um, and by the time he got to late 2009, while they did do some piecemeal things to extend and provide some support through unemployment insurance, um, they, they weren't actually serious about a second stimulus, even though the economy really needed it at that point. So just just goes to show you these things can shift very quickly. Now, I do think that there is a sort of more robust consensus now than there was in sort of January and February 2009. And again, it's not clear that we're actually going to see sort of the aggregate inflation 
be so strong over the course of late 2021 and 2022, it's not clear that that's going to show up in all prices. I think you're going to see it in some segments. I think that the Fed is largely showing that they're somewhat prepared for that. But nevertheless, like you're going to hear, see some hype about, oh, you saw airfares surge up. Well, what about used vehicles? And what about housing and healthcare? And these prices all kind of move in various ways, depending on both the sort of methodology and also just like the quirks that sort of dominate healthcare pricing and housing, rather rent pricing, I should say. You know, this is an interesting, I, I guess like I heard somewhere along the way that Milton Friedman said, inflation is always a monetary phenomenon. And this seems important to people. Uh, but then when you think about these specific sectors, right, we had this huge increase in used car prices uh, over the past year or at some point in the past year. Mm-hmm. And then you like ask why that was, right? And it's like, there was a problem with uh, car production, something to do with chips. Like, I don't know. And also, more people wanted cars because I guess New Yorkers didn't want to ride the subway or something. And so you had a big increase in the price of used. And now the price of used cars is going down again. And it just seems like the kind of thing where actually, if you look at why prices go up and down in different areas, there's usually like a reason. And it's worth, I don't know, looking at like, like if you think there's a national crisis where used cars have gotten too expensive, like you could say, well, is there some kind of used car policy we need to do? Or you <laughs> might have the more normal reaction be like, it doesn't matter. Like, I don't know, people bid up the price of used cars. Who cares? Like, it's a it's it's a little bit of an odd conventional wisdom to me, even though I, th- I think I understand it. Yeah, I, I mean, so the first Push. I I share your same sort of instincts here because I do think, and just as some sort of background, I for almost four years I was I was a market strategist um, and an economist, sort of focused on predicting not just like inflation on longer term trends, but just like inflation prints because there's a less set of like securities that are indexed to what the CPI reading is going to be each month. And part of that was just like digging into the methodology about each of these prices and what makes them move. And you start to realize a lot of this stuff is non-monetary and. I think the first pushback you get from economists is like, we're talking about the general price level. We're talking about an abstraction from these sort of localized movements. But how you abstract is actually not that obvious, right? Because which prices are you supposed to emphasize versus not emphasize really matters because you're going to use interest rate policy to adjust that under sort of the conventional wisdom, which is that you're trying to change interest rates and hope that that is going to sort of suppress demand for credit and demand for, um, in the economy as overall. And that itself is going to regulate the, the sort of overall price change. But if you look at it, like the used car dynamic, part of what you need there is more capacity. Is higher interest rates or lower interest rates going to solve that problem? That's going to be actually hindered, I would say, if you think about like the sort of financing costs. And if you, if you just in, increase the amount you have to devote to sort of covering your interest expense, if you're trying to actually invest in greater auto capacity or greater semiconductor capacity, it's not obvious that you're supposed to be raising interest rates to solve that type of problem. Now, I think that there are people who will say this is just a this supply shock. This is the exactly kind of thing that you can't do uh, through like monetary policy. Sure, but why would you, you really want to raise interest rates to solve a used car pricing problem? I think so. That's a question. I think a lot of economists probably feel very uncomfortable sort of broaching because of the sort of Milton Friedman. Dog, like I was say dogma, but it's just a certain like aphorism that people kind of just bring up. It's like it's always monetary. Wait, so it's like if more people lose their jobs, then they might have to sell their car to not starve. 
and that'll drive down the price of used car. But it's like, what did you solve there, right? Like, who whose life is is better in that universe, right? And, and I mean, this also comes up because housing is such a large component of the inflation index, right? Yes. And they do this. I mean, if you if you read the footnotes, right? They like they look at what rents are, and then they impute rent to people like me who don't rent houses but that's most people and so like people who own houses like when rents fall we don't say oh that's great our owner's equivalent rent has gone down now i can afford more dinner right like it i I think it's a hard problem like how you want to treat housing statistically in the inflation statistic but it has a very indirect relationship to people's actual cost of living or very differential one. Like if you are in fact renting and you have a short-term lease, then the spot price of rental housing where you live is like a really big deal for your life. It's like probably the single most important thing. But if you don't, then it doesn't matter like at all. Yeah, I mean, housing is particularly interesting for a few different reasons. One is this sort of, a, there's a big chunk of it that's being imputed from, the, the rental universe is extrapolated to the full housing universe. It is actually one of the few indices that can you can really point to and say it is cyclical. Housing inflation goes down in recessions and goes up during recoveries or sort of expansionary periods. That is something that you can actually see in a way that's actually not true for most, uh, for, or at least I say most, but at least much of the sort of inflation universe. If you look at the price components for a lot of categories, they're not actually that cyclical. This is a point that there's uh, San Francisco Fed has something you can look at, acyclical versus cyclical inflation. And acyclical represents a big chunk of inflation. So what you should really be asking, is really demand-side policy the right solution to a lot of those problems? But even with housing, I mean, the reason sort of it ends up being that rents tend to go up during sort of uh, <laughs> periods of expansion and rents tend to be at least like not growing as quickly during recessions has a lot to do with the fact that it's just like the supply tends to be very inelastic, right? Like this is, and this is a problem that you could solve through more supply as sort of you are very well <laughs> um, one of the biggest spokespeople for. And then, But then the question is, do we want policies that support more supply or do we want to just sort of say, actually people are demanding so much more in rent in sort of Manhattan or these sort of core urban areas and then that where should be the sort of driving force of monetary policy. I guess I think monetary policy obviously has a role to play in sort of inflation management but are willing to just say this is this is the the best place to locate most of the inflation control seems a little bit misguided. I mean we already have kind of moved a little bit away from that by acknowledging that actually it's not just about having more money in the economy but also who holds the money and who's willing to spend it actually matters. I think we've kind of drifted a little bit back towards recognizing that the location of that money and income really does make a difference for what, what inflation patterns are going to look like. But there's a second point about like sort of, yeah, this sort of like, what does capacity look like in all these different sectors? What's the ability to actually scale capacity if there is more demand or if there is? Um, those questions are not dictated purely by monetary policy, for sure. And you have this separation of roles, right? Like if there was a guy whose job was to like, address inflation and he had all kinds of powers right and you saw okay rents are escalating in seattle right like you would address that with i think probably regulatory solutions rather than monetary policy ones to change the supply but like that's not an actual job that exists right we we talk about inflation in a monetary policy context and then the policy makers at the fed 
they have the tools that they have, right? And mm-hmm. I thought it was a little confusing. I think um, I think the Bank of New Zealand announced that they were going to start targeting house prices, and it's like, well, there's like so little of the housing market that's actually under the control of a central bank that it's it seems like an odd thing to accept responsibility for when you're when you're not going to have any kind of position in it right I, I mean housing aside right as we're going through a kind of complicated restarting of the economy process i guess the hope my hope would be that the federal reserve can say you know look we're going to we're going to look through certain kinds of issues here and we're going to say the airline industry the hotel industry whatever other industry they got to kind of work out whatever their issues are and like maybe the transportation department can help them maybe not but we're not going to we're not going to like raise the unemployment rate as a solution to like they need to retrain their pilots yeah i mean i think the notion of how to adjust to some of these like short term sort like there's going to be this sort of overwhelming amount of spending in particular areas mm-hmm. and there may not be a sort of the local amount of capacity to deal with that except through maybe stretching it out over time maybe there's some price increases to adjust and that's exactly the kind of thing that is like you don't want monetary policy to be looking at in the like key moments and i kind of go back to 2008 if you look at the summer of 2008 there were two different trends going on at the same time and the question of which one you looked at it was going to have a massive difference about like what the ultimate outcomes were going to be in, in sort of later 2008 and 9. In summer 2008, there was this huge run-up in commodity prices. It wasn't just oil. It was like a series of commodities that were surging. You could attribute it to speculation. You could attribute it to like sort of these rosy expectations for um, emerging market demand. There was a huge emerging market boom at that time. At the same time, you saw the unemployment rate was going up. Housing starts were going down dramatically. You were seeing that actually the activity in the economy and the labor market was deteriorating before your eyes. And then the question is, what do you emphasize more? And to a lot of people in the, within the Fed at that time, while probably not typified as much by Bernanke himself, but he was kind of swayed by a lot of these sort of hawkish members of the FOMC, the notion was inflation, that if you get let inflation get out of control, I've seen this movie before, oil prices go up, inflation goes up, and the Fed lose control because they don't have credibility. And so let's not try to address this recession Let's actually try to address the fact that commodity prices are just like soaring in sort of June 2008, um, May, May and June 2008. Then there's the other side of this, which is that actually incomes are drying up <laughs> across the economy. You're seeing that the little bit of stimulus that was being done in sort of that Congress had passed had already sort of filtered its way through the system. And it wasn't necessarily doing anything to really slow down the bleeding. And so that was itself a very uh, challenged period in which if you looked at inflation, you would have had tight policy through Lehman Brothers. And look, the Fed didn't even cut rates after Lehman Brothers collapsed. And so this is a like where inflation can be a real sideshow. And so the, the Fed kind of paused, right, in 2008. They, they were cutting rates and then they cut rates later, but they faced this kind of moment of paralysis yep. when, because commodity prices were going up and it felt like, Bernanke was pushing back on calls to raise rates, but, you know, constrained. And then the Europeans, was it what, 2012, 20, there was some point during the Great Recession when the European Central Bank actually raises interest rates because commodity prices are going up. They did that also in June 2008 as well. They did that in 2008 and 2011. Ugh, um, they're so, so the, bad. So the ECB is sort of the sort of demonstrable version of actually raising rates because of inflation and then sort of having to reverse course almost immediately afterwards. And it, again, the, I think part of what 
the challenge for people who say inflation is actually we're just abstracting up and there is a real general price level that we can monitor is that these things have very different weights. Like you, you can put, attach different weights to different goods and services and it really does matter for what you see in terms of what inflation dynamics look like. And then when you look at the actual individual components, they follow different methodologies. Some of them adjust for quality, some of them don't. Some follow like one type of survey methodology, some, some follow a different type. Like that's, and it's kind of dictated by data availability. So actually you're not getting a consistent sort of methodological approach across housing, healthcare, autos, unlimited data plans, all of these things kind of follow their own rhyme and reason a little bit. And they also vary a lot over time because once the BLS gets access to new data, then they can incorporate that into the methodology. And so you're not actually getting like sort of consistent read across components across time in the way that people kind of assume them to be in a lot of um, sort of call it economic theory. And then you compare that to sort of labor market data, which is actually pretty robust in terms of there's not really a lot of revisions to things like the employment to population ratio. You can monitor wages and incomes to a reasonably reliable degree, and they do tend to be cyclically sensitive at the times when you want them to be cyclically sensitive. So they will tell you that the economy is deteriorating into a recession in 2008, and the economy is slowing down in 2011. At the moments when commodity prices might be doing something else for some sort of short-run reason that don't necessarily have that sort of persistent quality that people associate with sort of inflation and inflation expectations, as if that should be the sort of central guiding force for monetary policy and macroeconomic policy in general. And, you know, I mean, I, I would really put that point to to non-economists and anybody listening here. You know, if you just like work in politics or, or you work in media, put out of your head for a minute, like what the experts say about these things. And just think about like, how would you tell like how many people have jobs, right? And it's a fairly straightforward survey problem, right? I mean, like it's hard to conduct large scale surveys. But, you know, we understand what it is to have a job versus not have a job. We count people all the time um, versus like, what is the level of prices in general? Right. Like it's a very that's a very mysterious problem. <laughs> and if you get accustomed to economic data enough, you can just start to be like, OK, well, I can look it up. Right. <laughs> it's it's right there in the CPI. But the process through which these things are created is very mysterious. There are different indexes to track it. Different countries have different sort of methods. And in a world where we don't have, you, you mentioned this earlier, but when we had stronger labor unions, right, if commodity prices went up and that pushed the CPI up, a lot of people's wages would go up mechanically because they had a provision in their contract that said you did that. And that created problems for their employers. And then it meant that if you didn't have a COLA clause in your contract, like you might really be left out in the cold. But that wasn't like a distinct policy problem of a specific point in time that I think doesn't necessarily exist now. Yeah, I mean, union density itself is much lower. And then even if you think about the prevalence of COLA in terms of in contracts, it's also not as prevalent as you might have seen in the 70s. I think that to also to the point about like quantifying the quantifiable, but also showing some level of humility about... I'll give you an example of 2017, where we had core inflation readings drop 
quite dramatically. And core inflation excludes food and energy because food and energy are the more volatile components. It's a way of like sort of tackling this notion of what is the true trend in inflation if we kind of strip out these more volatile components, which is it's pretty sensible in, in a sort of from a mm-hmm. Fed perspective, it gets distorted from a media narrative. Oh, the Fed doesn't care about food and energy. It's not quite, that's not really what the Fed's trying to say there. But core inflation itself dropped dramatically because telecommunication services prices dropped dramatically within the BLS's measurement. But why did they drop dramatically? And it was because Verizon made unlimited data plans available. Now, that seems like a little bit of an odd thing. No sticker price changed, but because unlimited data plans became available, then the cost per data, if you try to control for the quality of phone plan when you include the ability to to buy unlimited data, then all of a sudden you're actually getting more back for your buck. That actually has a certain intuitive sense. But it is like actually challenging to actually extrapolate that. What kinds of things for quality are you trying to actually account for? Depends on what data you have available. And there's all sorts of like methodological choices that determine whether you're actually going to see the sticker price translate into this sort of CPI reading. There are a whole set of things to filter that through. And it's not totally obvious that like in some cases that the methodology is correct. In some cases, like uh, cable TV prices. Part of like what's factored in is how many channels are in your package. But like what channels are in your package, like is that a good proxy for quality? Sometimes yes, sometimes no, right? Like that's these things are like a little bit of judgment, a little bit about data availability. I don't think it's any way like a bad faith thing on the part of VLS. I think that's the way this stuff can get distorted. But like this is a challenging problem. It's a much ch- more challenging problem than tracking the labor market. Right, right. I mean, I- exactly. Well, and then similarly from a policy perspective, right? You can ask yourself, okay, how is my interest rate change going to alter the availability of unlimited data plans? And like, I mean, you could explain it, right? But it's very broke compared to how does interest rate changes impact employment? And, you know, I mean, I I just think like both of those things are worth keeping in mind, like what's well measured and what's directly related to the policy variable that you're interested in. There's this whole group of people at the FCC who like tries to regulate the mobile phone industry, and they probably have a lot more influence over, you know, data plan availability and these other things that than, than the Fed does and you can you can take it up with them. Um, we should take a second break and, and talk about some more stuff. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on surprise, the future of work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. At Evernorth Health Services... We believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Explain to people what the AIT is that the Fed is doing, because I think I think we're going to start to see some controversy about this over over the coming months. 
So AIT stands for Average Inflation Targeting, and the, what the Fed has said as of August, late August 2020 was that they were going to adopt a sort of shift in their framework that would try to capture how their performance on their inflation target of 2% and actually be able to make up for any misses on either side to a modest degree. And so it would say that over time, inflation should average 2%. If we have missed on one side of our 2% target for a persistent period, that should warrant some makeup down the line. This is particularly relevant in the context of the 2010s decade and the 2010s expansion, when inflation for most of that period ran below the Fed's forecast. And particularly once you strip out food and energy and you actually look at sort of these underlying trends, you see that inflation readings kept underwhelming what the Fed thought was going to happen, consistent with their 2% inflation target. First it was, oh, there were a set of economists who were saying because the Fed has provided all this policy support, low interest rates, QE, that was going to create inflation. That didn't happen. Then there was a notion that actually it was the unemployment rate that was the reason why that we didn't get inflation. But actually unemployment went through 5%, uh, it went down all, as low as 3.5%, and even then we did not see sort of a meaningful period in which inflation got to 2% on a sustained basis or above 2%. And then the sort of third thing was, oh, the dollar was much stronger over one period of time, but once the dollar stopped appreciating, that will be the reason why we'll see some inflation show up. That didn't show up either. And so these sort of systematic misses have kind of led the Fed to say, well, we need to find a way to be a little bit more symmetric and actually hit 2% on a sustained basis, because what if we keep missing that 2% goal, then there may be some sign of like actually people's expectations of inflation will fall, and actually it means that we're not going to be able to provide the kind of accommodation if everyone's already expecting slower price increases than they already were. That's kind of the theory side. The sort of thing the Fed has actually tried to better communicate now is like part of this is like we could have run a hotter economy in the 2010s than we did before, than we, than we thought previously. We could have actually done better in terms of our macroeconomic performance. We could have had more job growth, maybe some faster wage growth, and <laughs> that was sort of the missed opportunity. So there's something we're systematically missing. And when we see those systematic misses, it does kind of warrant that we actually average a higher inflation rate, uh, well, average 2% over time means that going forward, getting a little bit more than 2% inflation to make up for all those other periods when we didn't have, we didn't even get up to 2% makes some sense. Right. Um, and, and I mean, do you think, is this is this a good idea? Is this Is this going to work? Is this an adequate way to think about policy going forward? I think on its own, the thing I worry about is when it becomes inflation fixation, when it becomes we need to look at each sort of CPI reading or sorry, for the Fed, it's PCE deflator. And so the Fed's inflation readings, like what are they going to be evolving on over month to month, quarter to quarter, year over year? And how does that match up over past years? As I said, I think the, the other part of their framework review that they changed was to say, we're not going to be trying to land it on a pin in terms of the unemployment rate or employment levels. That we're actually going to react only to shortfalls in employment. So this is to say when employment is below sort of past peaks and not think that, oh, because unemployment rate is sort of low relative to what our models think is consistent with 2% inflation, that that itself is a reason to try and like aim for higher unemployment. If you do see an overheating economy because of price inflation, high high levels of income growth, you want to adjust interest rates to sort of moderate that process. Fine, but don't like 
use the unemployment rate as the justification for that, which was kind of what they did in 2015. And so part of the other thing they changed there, I think sort of reflects the fact that the Fed is getting a little bit more focused on, like, the real problem was we didn't run the economy at a sort of persistently high rate of employment and wage growth that we should have, and not that, okay, prices weren't growing as fast as the Fed expected. I think to most people that sounds kind of tone deaf, right? To say that in terms of saying, oh, the Fed wanted to actually increase your prices more or wanted to see higher price increase in the economy. Or we quote unquote want more inflation. Yeah, we want more inflation instead of saying we want more income growth, we want more wage growth. That seems actually a little more politically intuitive. And right. actually, I think actually it re- represents the real motivation. I don't think there's a, like a sort of bad faith sense of, oh, we want higher inflation and like to cramp uh, household real incomes. The real reason they want this is because they want to see sort of more nominal income and spending growth in the economy. So, I, I mean, I, this thing about the shortfalls is super important because I don't think, I think like normal people are not attuned to this. But for the longest time, the sort of established view has been that an economy naturally grows along some kind of line that's determined by, I don't know what, like technology or, you know, microeconomic policy, whatever it is. And that then you have ups and downs, like recessions that are fluctuations, like along the line. And that deviating from that true path in either direction is a problem. So we had this whole, you know, discourse after a Larry Summers op-ed about the economy overheating and the Congressional Budget Office's measurements of the output gap. And the way the way the CBO thinks about this is that the economy was above potential all in 2018 and 2019, even though, like, I assume everyone listening to the show was alive in 2018 and 2019. Nothing terrible was happening. Uh, like it was fine. It was like obviously sustainable to have the economy at that, at that kind of level. Um, but at least like their framework still says that that's not right, that the unemployment rate was, was too low in some kind of mysterious sense. And the Fed is trying to get away from that theory of the too low unemployment rate. Yeah, and you even see out in the Fed's projections in sort of 2017, 18, 19, it started to show up even increasingly so, is that the unemployment rate needed to increase in order to keep inflation in check over the long run. That was sort of what the Fed was communicating, was that actually we're at an unemployment rate now that is past full employment, according to some of the Fed presidents and FOMC members, generally that, that, that we, we've, got, we've overshot. And if we over, overshoot, that's going to create inflation. And so we have to take this sort of... Um, like balanced view of what unemployment rate can be and like sort of we react as sort of forcefully on either side whether employment is too high or too low but in like intuitive terms the problem there's, there's always a problem of too low employment is there ever a problem of too high employment right like that's kind of a like employment is excessively high we need to solve that problem that sounds like very clunky and wrong-headed really it's like that notion that people too many people have jobs as opposed to Okay, maybe there are some inflationary consequences that may or may not happen. And I think this was something that if you took the sort of the 60s and 70s, sort of the Milton Friedman view of there's a natural rate of unemployment. If you try to aim for something below that, um, you might be able to achieve it in the short run, but over the longer run, unemployment rate will ultimately just kind of correct back. And that's itself like a problem in terms of like it's going to have inflationary consequences. So all you'll get in the end from trying to run monetary policy a little bit more accommodatively is more inflation, but you'll only you'll ultimately get back to the same 
unemployment rate. That's kind of the way, at least that idea was interpreted by the Fed. There's some other Milton Friedman ideas that are a little more, (laughs) that look actually better over time in terms of the plucking model of macroeconomics, which says that actually the real problem is one in which there's like, Shortfalls in employment, and actually, you, you should. It's asymmetric in nature. We're not trying to target employment. We're just trying to get it back to its previous trend, at least. And we shouldn't be trying to do too much uh, on the other side. So it really depends on that. So the asymmetry really matters on the employment side. No one's saying that if there's high inflation, the Fed should always sit on its hands and do nothing. But it is to say, like, let's look for the heat in the labor market and the heat in the economy itself. And that heat is reflected not entirely, but to some degree on price increases. If we did see price increases across the economy, I think that's the kind of thing we should be looking for, especially in a market-oriented economy like ours, where there are still like prices that are set in, in a way that if we did see price increases, that's, that's the heat we're talking about. If we're just talking about because the unemployment rate is low, that's pretty weak, because like, we don't really know where the natural rate of unemployment is in real time. These things are like all like concepts that are developed by economists to kind of make sense of the world, but it's not actually directly observable in any meaningful way. Right. And I mean, but this this then does go back to that anchor, right? Because it's like the the case for treating it symmetrically would be that there's some very large value to not seeing the inflation. The way I think about it is that, you know, if inflation went from one and a half percent to two percent to three percent to four percent, like, yes, like you would want to react to that. But, you know, like it's fine, right? Like it got too high, then you've reacted and it goes back down. But the pushback I've gotten on that from from policymakers, you know, Democrats and Republicans is like, no, no, no. Once you get up to four percent. The expectations are unanchored, and you're going to need an extremely deep recession to get them back down. And I don't know, like, I don't really understand what the evidence for that is supposed to be. Yeah, I think a lot of this stuff is written sort of post hoc from the sort of late 60s experience. Mm -hmm. It's a notion of uh, we saw inflation rise in the late 60s, and it didn't really come back down in the sort of 70s. We actually had a huge oil shock. We had a series of um, sort of issues that we had to deal with, and but I think they're all kind of there are obviously several reasons for the high inflation of the seventies, but they all kind of get reductively pointed to. Oh, inflation went up. We kind of kept unemployment rate low, even as inflation was increasing. See, this stuff is uncontrollable, right? And we don't really want to look at some of these other reasons in terms of. Even people say, oh, the oil shocks don't really explain a lot of the inflation. Well, I'm not sure that's actually true because I think oil was really important for the economy in the 70s. But if you think about the late 60s phenomenon, if we wanted to control inflation itself and raise interest rates because of that for some justifiable reasons, this, this sort of specter of inflation, because I think people feel like the 70s were so uncontrollable and the only thing that really counted was Paul Volcker finally taking an axe to the economy. <laughs> That's, I guess, the main justification. Now, oil prices also peaked sort of around the sort of call it early 80s, and you sort of saw that oil prices collapsed in 85, 86 because we had so much overcapacity in oil. So OPEC had a really hard time controlling prices, right? So we don't, there, there, there was also a capacity issue that kind of was ultimately resolved through more investment, more exploration. There was ultimately that oil supply crunch that was, I think, a big guiding force to much of the, explained much of it because oil was like in, integral to so many production processes. Once that scarcity emerged, it was really hard to manage, especially since that oil was being produced outside of um, the U.S. itself. But like, we don't really point to that, right? We don't say, oh, actually, these are capacity problems that we need to deal with in some ways that may require 
curbing demand in these places while ensuring adequate investment in these other places. Instead, it ends up being a sort of a story of, oh, we let the inflation increase, we didn't succeed in curbing the inflation, and the only thing that worked was Paul Volcker. Right, like that, that, that that's the sort of reductive storyline you get. Right. I mean, because, yeah, I mean, look, there was a whole different uh, universe. In World War II, one of my grandfathers was involved in uh, rationing and price setting for the American footwear industry, right? And so it was all about, well, we need so many boots uh, for the troops, and we need so many boots for farmers, and we want there to still be a civilian shoe supply, and also investing in shoe production capability can come at the expense of other things that matter to us more. Obviously, like I, I don't think you want to run the economy in normal times, totally along those <laughs> those lines of of World War II. Uh, but like that is like a different way, at least in a severe national emergency. We have in the past thought about the capacity limits in the economy in that framework, rather than saying, okay, demand for boots is really high, so we need to make people unemployed so they can't afford any shoes and that's going to sort of fix our problems for us. To, to that, like, there's something that dovetails with that very point about sort of price administration. Like, so there is a sector that is becoming increasingly important for how we calculate inflation and just in terms of pure weight it counts for, and that's healthcare. And healthcare itself, the government will be increasingly dominant because aging of the population, more people on Medicare. And we do see that how much we, how much this, like CMS policy, how much Congress is willing to a- allocate for various sort of medi- Medicare subprograms really does matter for um, like the process of like how much healthcare services of inflation we saw. I think this is actually a very underrated part of the 2010s in terms of why we saw low inflation. Much of that inflation deceleration occurred in healthcare services, and that happened because of a series of changes that happened because of um, ACA. It also happened because of certain things within the sequester. So there were a series of policies that actually mandated that healthcare providers provide more quantity of services for the same price, roughly speaking. And so that showed up as sort of slightly higher output and slower price increases. I think that's kind of a loss in the discussion, and it's actually going to become more and more relevant because healthcare prices are also not very cyclical. They don't go down in recessions. They actually kind of tend to. <laughs> there's this sort of perverse thing in terms of healthcare where you see that it's slightly countercyclical in terms of healthcare services inflation, and a lot of that has to kind of just do with how the policy kind of results in that. Now, how we want to like set prices in healthcare, like there's a whole like debate and discussion <laughs> about that that I'm not going to get into here, but I do think it's worth pointing out. Like the pricing process. Is different across sectors, and how much markets matter, and how much the Fed's relevant to that. We should really take a little bit more seriously than we do, because I do. I think it's a it becomes a much more complicated beast than the sort of inflation is a monetary phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think we'll we'll, we'll probably end it there rather than than deep dive into healthcare prices. Uh, <laughs> but we we have talked about that many times on the weeds, and I do think that's an important takeaway from this conversation is that we should integrate our understanding of housing policy, healthcare price setting, et cetera, like they aggregate up to to this like quote unquote inflation in a sort of important and uh, potentially underrated way. Um, so thank you so much, Skanda. Um, thanks as always to our sponsors, to our producer, Eric Chinakis, and the Weeds will be back on Tuesday. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. 
Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com.